Peter Sutcliffe had been caught, but what about the man who had pretended to be the serial killer? What about the man who had laid that dark deception, the man nicknamed Wearside Jack? For nearly three years between March 1978 and Sutcliffe's capture in January 1981, the letters were regarded as among the most important exhibits in British crime fighting and experts at the time had performed every experiment possible to squeeze the tiniest bit of science out of them which might lead to the identity of the author. But now it's the early 2000s and they're lost. Chris Gregg, who was a rookie detective back in the late 1970s, is now a detective chief superintendent setting up West Yorkshire Police's elite homicide and major inquiry team. It's busy, but at the back of his mind is that case, that hoax from years before. Who is Wearside Jack? Where is he now? How can he bring him to justice? For Chris Gregg, this is unfinished business. This is Behind the Crimes. I'm Robert Murphy. A word of warning, this is a true crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part miniseries describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by a nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims, and I've avoided using it wherever possible, but sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This miniseries is called Deadly Deception, Episode 3, Between Two Slides of Glass. Identity of the sender of the the letters and, and tips wasn't the highest priority in the force at that point because they hadn't caught this person anyway through the natural investigation process. So were they going to catch him now? I think they just thought, you know, but draw a line under this. And I went about my career um, never forgetting this, and um, but also thinking, well, hmm, who, who is that person? Who, who, who was that person who did this? And, but once DNA, forensic DNA, started to becoming um, vital in you know, police investigation, that piqued my interest in this. There was no great appetite uh, to start, for me to start going in rattling cages about, let's sort the Yorkshire Ripper hooks around. But um, as soon as I thought DNA... And the first one of them, I thought those letters that had gummed seals on the in the envelopes that we got the bee secreted from and on the stamps, yeah, it can't be beyond the wit of man that if we've got those envelopes, we've got a half a chance of getting some DNA from the saliva of the person who licked them. We got a blood grouping back in you know 1980 uh, 1978. I remember I think I was a detective inspector, so this would have been early 90s, 1990, And I remember saying to the detective chief superintendent, head of CID for the force, you know those, um, those letters and tapes? We've got DNA. Can we ever go at them? You know? Oh, no, no, no. They've gone. They've gone, those letters. Where have they gone? They've gone. They've just, you know, we don't know where they are, kind of thing. Okay, so... Hmm. Then I was up another rank then, and um, 
detective chief inspector. There's another head of CID. And a, a few years had gone on, and and uh, I remember having a conversation with this particular um, chief superintendent who had worked on the Ripper case. So I thought, and I had a conversation with him, and he just said, "Look, he said there's been three inquiries done, three reviews done, done over the years. They're gone, and um, you know we don't know where they are. They've just gone. They can't be found." I thought, oh, "This is a bit of a brick wall." And um, so, when I was appointed head of CID as detective chief superintendent, and um, I was in a position where I could do something about it, but I was also conscious that at that time, which was 2004 or five, we had an awful lot going on in the force. So I was picking up head of CID. We'd had the 7-7 bombers on our patch in Newsbury and Leeds. We were working with SL-13. We'd got all this. We just had um, PC Sharon Beshenevsky shot through a bungle on robbery in Bradford and Theresa Milburn, her colleague, shot. We had a lot going on. There was a lot of major crime happening. And, you know, I've got to be conscious here. I wasn't going to be starting to launch a huge investigation into something that happened 25, 26 years previously. But I thought we can do this in and amongst a piece of work that needs doing anyway through our cold case team. And I wanted them to archive the written material because what I found was when I sat at my desk for the first day as head of CID in my inbox. I don't believe it. Right at the bottom of the inbox was a, a letter from somebody who'd said, I think that person who sent the Ripper hoax tapes was on a number 49 bus in Bradford. And I heard this. I thought, still 20, getting letters in. And it wasn't any, anything. And it just it made me realise you know, and we were getting uh, requests from the media quite a lot about the Ripper still. And I found that we needed to be able to answer these questions properly as well. The Ripper material at that point was spread all over West Yorkshire in terms of there may be some documents in, um, in a loft in Halifax, there'd be some exhibits in a cellar in Huddersfield, in Leeds there'd be... Uh, it was all over the place. And I thought, this needs just centralising. And we, we, have, <clears throat> we, we have a major crime store uh, where all the major crime exhibits are stored. And with modern systems of property, uh, uh, property and exhibit recording, they're all electronically done now. And this was happening in 2004 anyway. So West Yorkshire Police, like other forces, was electronically archiving all its information. But of course, the Ripper, that was all still out in, in garages, sheds, lofts and everywhere. So I, I tasked uh, two pieces of work. One was to bring all the Ripper material that we knew still existed together under one roof and electronically archive it, which has been done. And secondly, locate what happened to those Ripper letters and tape. I want a timeline of where they are. The detectives went to the... Um, laboratory at Weatherby, which covers this part of the world, and there was a there was a drawer marked Ripper letters and tape. So I thought this is easy. Open the drawer, but it was empty, of course. And um, and so the laboratory management said we haven't got anything. We tracked the process down and spoke to the various 
scientists who were involved at the time and the detectives, and <clears throat> we found out that the letters were taken down to the Lambeth Laboratory in London, um, and they were tested for fingerprints. They used a process called ninhydrin, which is used today, and it turns the paper purple. And so what they've done, before they knew it would be a destructive process, but they take beautiful photographic, you know, records of, of all the letters. They were all there. We'd got all those, but we hadn't got the originals, which we wanted. So the envelopes and the um, and the letters were sent to Lambeth. The scientists who we spoke to who tested them said that they 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 put so much ninhydrin on them, trying to lift fingerprints from them. They tried, tried again, tried again. Didn't just turn them purple; it turned the whole plate, paper black. And they had to fumigate the lab with the chemical smells. It was a health and safety hazard. They had, they had to fumigate all that. So we knew that these were destroyed now. We knew that they'd gone and they said they were destroyed. Everywhere Chris Gregg turned seemed to be an investigative dead end. Scientists had destroyed the letters, desperate to lift prints. In fact, they'd nearly damaged themselves in the process. But they were not the only way Wearside Jack had contacted George Oldfield. We then got a scientist who'd um, dealt with the tape. And we traced the scientist who had actually got the tape at home with him, the original tape, taking it home with him. But, so we got the tape back, the original tape. Um, we got um, nothing from the letters. But one of the things I wanted to be absolutely certain about was that there, weren't this, that there wasn't anything left at Weatherby particularly, because having worked with scientists over the years, I always know that some of the scientists often will keep a little bit of something from the item they're examining, because they don't know what advances make them later. And, you know, they may cut out uh, a, a bit of a blood sample, for example, and just keep a bit, send some for testing, keep a piece of the garment carefully preserved. And so um, I um, asked it to be put into writing that I wanted the management of the laboratory to confirm categorically there was nothing at that laboratory uh, connected to those letters or envelopes. And time went by, time went by and we suddenly got a call um, that Valerie Tomlinson, you know, who could have given the biggest, you know, yeah, thanks to him. I'd have kissed her if she was there, honestly, it was unbelievable. She said, she, and Valerie's a top biologist, she'd been searching in a um, cage at the lab where all lots of exhibits are, and in a place it shouldn't have been was a glass slide um, and in the trapped between two pieces of glass slides little glass slides was a perfectly preserved two centimeter section of the seal from envelope three of the ripper letters that the scientist had preserved and she blew the dust off it and there it was Between two slides of glass was the last remaining fragment, a two-centimetre scrap of envelope, the last forensic link, the last chance to identify Wearside Jack. 
Could the scientist Valerie Tomlinson get any DNA from this sample? And if she could, would it match with anyone on the National DNA Database? If the hoaxer hadn't offended, he wouldn't be on it. There would be nothing, no one, to match the DNA to. Two weeks later, Chris Gregg was in a meeting in Wakefield. Senior officers around a table. It was the 18th of October 2005, 27 years after the first letter was sent, 26 years after the tape. Chris noticed his phone ringing. Calling him was the head of the major crime section of the forensic team at Weatherby, a scientist called Peter Grant. Chris wondered if it were a result from the DNA test on the sliver of paper. So he made an excuse and slipped out of the room. I've known Peter many years and he was you know, the, one of the senior guys at the lab. He rang me and he, he literally said, Chris, and, and Peter does not get excited. Um, Peter is one of the most... And you won't mind me saying this, most calm and controlled people, even in the moment, you know, I, I, I do get excited. You know, and uh, I remember him saying, Chris, I have some news for you. <laughs> and uh, yes, Peter, I, I was, um, we've got a profile from that uh, DNA from the envelope. Yes, sir, Peter. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, it's a man called John Humble. I said, is he from Sunderland? He said, yes. I said, thank God. Science can give police some certainty these days, even in what might seem, on a first appearance, to be a difficult case to prove. The lab said the suspect, a man called John Humble, was a billion times more likely to have licked the envelope shut than anyone else. Humble lived in Sunderland. Within hours, um, we'd sent a team up to Northumbria and... Uh, linking in with our colleagues up there to find out a lot more. And, um, and we had John Humble in custody that evening. It was literally, let's get on to this. Humble lived in Sunderland. He was a sometime labourer and oftentimes heavy drinker. He'd been married once, but was now living with his brother in what can only be described as deep squalor. He was known as John the Bagman because he was seen going to and from um, the off-licence a couple of times a day, you know, to buy you know, cider and things like that. He was he was not in a good state. Um, heavy heavy alcoholic. His his life, I think, had, had obviously not gone well in recent times. Um, petty petty criminal, a dislike of the police. I think a bit anti-police in his background. When he was arrested, he, he was completely you know um, drunk. Um, he was brought down to uh, West Yorkshire. It took him, before we could interview him, probably about 24 hours to sober up before he was fit for interview. His community was completely oblivious that the man who was once one of the most wanted men in Britain was the guy they saw as the village drunk. When had John Humble appeared on the National DNA database? He'd only appeared on the database about five years previously. He'd never been on it. Um, in his career as a petty criminal, um, but, but because they weren't taking DNA, and you know, and, until probably the early nineties, routinely for people committing crime, or mid nineties for people committing crime. But in two thousand, he committed a, a, I can't remember what it was. It was something very petty, and um, he'd been put on the database. So he'd only been on about five years. But that didn't prove he was Wearside Jack just proved he'd licked an envelope nearly 30 years previously. He could argue he was given it by the real hoaxer. 
they would need to interview John Humble. Could they corroborate the DNA hit? What would he say? They came up with a plan to get John Humble to open up. We developed a strategy. We have an, in, an interview strategy in modern policing. It was an interview strategy with um, interview advisors and so on and so forth. So I was yeah, the heart of all this. And, and uh, first interview, it would just be a getting to know you and gently asking him straightforward questions about it. And then interview number three was where the DNA was going to be dropped on. And so that was the plan, anyway, and a series of like five interviews planned out. So we, I was monitoring it with a colleague uh, in, a, in a adjacent room somewhere, and the, inter- and the two detectives who were interviewing started off, and he had his lawyer in there and a social worker. So he was now sobered up, sat, detectives, interview, all on tape and being uh, filmed as well. And it was, it was a bit of cat and mouse. First interview, the detectives are asking him, um, you know, did you send the tapes? Did you send the letter? I'm watching video footage of that interview now. It's a small white police room. Two men, detectives, sit in shirts and ties, looking across a black desk. Huddled over a file is Humble's lawyer. John Humble wears a bright blue top, long-sleeved, rolled to the elbows. He has dark grey hair, scruffily arranged with a widow's peak. He has a handlebar moustache the same colour. Under that moustache is a mouth which remains firmly shut. He shakes his head, his communication just visual, he stays silent. Detectives have no way of hearing if he has that distinctive Wearside Jack voice. Tell me in detail, please, everything that you know about those letters and tell me in detail now, please. And he was just shaking his head, not speaking to him. It's a bit strange. <laughs> Is he not speaking because of his voice? He's thinking they're going to get voice analysis. So straight away we're thinking this is unusual, the way he's not answering, speaking, he's answering by shaking. And, and at times he's scratching his head with questions, but the detective was just taking him step by step along the um, inquiring about the letters that were sent where, you know, did you send them kind of thing. That was it. And it went on for 40 minutes or so. End of interview number one, not getting anywhere with it really. So we had a quick debrief. Said, so bring interview number three forward, drop the DNA on him. Let's see where this goes. And um, so his solicitor, um, I think, was advising him again not to speak at that stage. But as soon as um, the detectives started questioning him this time, uh, they must have said, can you just for the tape confirm your name? Humble spoke for the first time. So, okay. And the solicitor was, oh, well, uh, you sure you were? John Humble. Of course, now we had his voice. And uh, the detective just said, look, we have DNA from the letter. It's your DNA. Do you want to tell us about it? I, I sent him in the Geordie twang, the same as the same tone as on the tape. And he then, he then opened up and he confessed everything about it all. And it was one of those, again, moments where it took me straight back to being in that courtroom in 1979. 
hearing that tape and that voice, that intensity, because I was now listening to this, but the person was sat there who was the person who'd done it. But the voice and the way he spoke, it was almost as if I was listening to that tape again, because the tone of his voice, this was the person who for all those years, they're terrorising her. The boys are letting you down, George. I am Jack. You know, that's which everybody at the time was familiar with. And he basically said that um, he'd been at home. He thought that cops were useless, that police were useless. I was involving myself, you know, because he was asked, why did you involve himself? Well, that, that lassie, Jane MacDonald, who was um, killed. After she'd been killed, I thought, you know, the... The, well, how did it help you sending this? You know, he, he couldn't obviously answer, he, he, but he'd involved himself for no good reason, uh, saying that the, the police were basically useless. That's why I did what I did. And um, he said that he'd been down to the library, he'd got a, a book out on the original Whitechapel Ripper murders, and he'd paraphrased some of those kind of expressions in there and used that as his template, which which was um, known at the time that there were similarities with those. Now contrite, he even agreed to read for detectives the words he wrote years earlier as Wearside Jack. His voice had aged. It was chilling, still the same. I'm Jack. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. He said that once it started snowballing, he realised um, that I, he said, I, I tried to ring the police. He said, and, and he said, I rang the incident room in Sunderland. And I said, uh, it's, you know, it's not right. It's not right. It's not a Geordie. It's not a Geordie. Now, we know that he did make that call. A PC mount in the incident room in Sunderland took a call from someone anonymously, which turned out, clearly to be John Humble, saying just that. This is that call. While Peter Sutcliffe was running free, killing women, while police were floundering around looking in Sunderland, John Humble made this call to the Sunderland incident room, saying the tape was a hoax. Um, it's a camp. What's a fake? The camp recording. What one is this? The one that he's just received? The Ripper. How do you know that? Just tell him. Just tell him. The one in June. Pardon? The one in June. And if you missed that, and you may have, Humble tells police, tell them it's a fake. The one in June. He was now being asked about this in the interview in 2005. And why did you decide it was time to phone in, John? Because I felt guilty. Why? Because that last, one of the lasses was murdered. And I blamed myself for it. That's why I phoned in. They took no notice and another two got killed. They took no notice and another two got killed. Here was Humble offering remorse and contrition and realising the full impact of his deception. Women died because Sutcliffe hadn't been caught and the inquiry into Sutcliffe had been derailed because of Humble. And in an incredible revelation from Humble's interview... Back in the 1970s, when police were searching for Wearside Jack, he watched from the window as detectives made the way along the street, closing in on him. Whether he rang, whether he rang the incident room because the net was closing around him 
and he wanted to call the dogs off, which is actually what I believe. I think he realised, because he actually said to us that the police came right along his street, taking samples from everybody, right, right to the door next to him, door next door to him, and stopped. You know, so it, they were that close to him. But I think he was trying to call the dogs off. And um, because I'm sure he could have found ways to make it clear that it was a hoax if he'd have chosen to, even by writing in again to say it's a hoax. Yeah, but he didn't do that. But what he did do was try to take his own life. He um, was on a bridge in Sunderland and he'd put stones in his pockets and he jumped into the, uh, to the river where. But unfortunately for him, he hit the side of a police barge that was just going under. They pulled him out, saved his life, not realising whose life he was saving. So yeah, police officers holding one of the most wanted men in the country. They just didn't know who they had on that boat at that time, or who you know tried to uh, to jump in it almost. But that that was the look that he had, or you know, to get away with it for all those years. But you know, it, it came back at the end where he nearly got away with it forever, Rob. You know, he would have got away for it forever um, un- unless that seal had been found, because Weatherby Lab today no longer exists. That's finished. That's closed down years ago with the closure of the Forensic Science Service and all the items from Weatherby would have, you know, probably, they're all in the Central Archive now from, uh, from the various forensic labs, but I suspect that would have gone forever. He was charged with perverting the course of justice and he denied that, trying to get a lesser charge, didn't he? But, but that wasn't accepted. Yeah, he, he, was, he was charged with um, four counts of perverting the course of justice for the three letters of the tape. He tried to or his legal team tried to um, get a, a lower charge based on some technicality, you know, over the perverting the course of justice. Did he pervert the course of justice? It was all over that. But eventually he pleaded guilty um, and was sentenced to eight years and, you know, had, had some strong words ringing in his ears from the trial judge about his involvement in something that nothing, you know, nothing to do with him. What, what do you think uh, a- about him because he did show some remorse didn't he He showed some contrition but he only went so far with that didn't he 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 did Rob yeah you know in terms of an individual he has not um had I would say a particularly healthy life um he was living alone he he was not in the best of uh best of health in any respect mentally or physically and um, why he did it, only he knows. I, yes, he did show remorse um, in the interview, and he, I think he genuinely did feel that it was something crazy that he'd done. Um, I, he would probably at the time, have, have, like a lot of people, seen the police investigation floundering a little bit, and he, was, um, he didn't help by doing what he did. I think that was probably down to his anti-police kind of stance at the time. He was only a young guy at the time. And um, he, he thought it was probably something that amused him in some ways, that he was involving himself until it became too hot for him and, and it was taken seriously. Probably never in a million years expected it would be taken so seriously because he couldn't 
he probably couldn't uh, comprehend the amount of potential linkages that would make it be taken seriously. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he was remorseful at the end. I didn't feel anything for him in terms of him as, um, as an individual. I just felt that it was important for a lot of reasons that this person was identified. The, the fact that he had involved himself and this investigation had been so derailed because of it, and that's not, that's not entirely his fault, that's through others, again, who took it seriously and allowed it to be. But he was involved, he did what he did, and I just felt that with modern science now being what it was, if we could nail him for that, we should do. It wasn't a loose end for anybody else, but for me it was. I, I just thought, this is something that is a loose end. And it did feel as though identifying this individual showed that we hadn't forgotten about it. And we did it. We sorted it out, albeit late in the day, but it was sorted out. And he didn't get away with it. And he actually served his time in prison for it. And there was something that justice was done at the end of the day, albeit a small piece of justice, but justice was done. Coming away from Leeds Crown Court the day he was convicted, I was stood outside doing you know, the usual after-court um, media things and press interviews. And um, waiting for me nearby was uh, Richard McCann, who I didn't know Richard, but I'd seen Richard on the news a lot with his mum, you know, Wil Wilma McCann, the first victim. And Richard has made a huge success of his life and is a, a speaker, an inspirational speaker um, on, on all matters related to uh, what we're talking about. And Richard, I spoke to Richard very briefly. And what he said to me was, he said that, he said, when his mum had been killed and this voice became, came on the television. He said, that was the voice of the person who had killed my mum in his mind. He said, and he said, I know it wasn't him after Sutcliffe was caught. He said, but I, I still always felt that that was the killer's voice. He said, seeing him today in court, it's finished that now. Humble was sentenced to eight years in prison. He later appealed the sentence unsuccessfully. He served four years and was given a new identity on release, John Anderson. He died in August 2019 from heart failure brought on by his alcoholism. A little over a year later, Peter Sutcliffe, the serial killer, died. He'd been incarcerated at HMP Franklin, a prison only a few miles from Sunderland, from where Wearside Jack had sent those hoax letters. In 2011, a DNA breakthrough found the killer of Joan Harrison, the woman found dead in Preston in 1975. Police identified a man from Leeds, Christopher Smith, as her murderer. He died in 2008. The Crown Prosecution Service said that had he been alive, it had enough evidence to charge him with her murder. George Oldfield retired in 1983 after suffering two heart attacks. He died in 1985. He was, colleagues said, a broken man. He got the call wrong about the hoaxes. He had a spectacular piece of bad luck that not only the serial killer, but also the killer of Joan Harrison in Preston 75 and John Humble, the hoaxer, all had the same rare B blood group.
Chris Gregg retired in 2008. He was awarded a Queen's Police Medal in that year's birthday honours. He's since established a company with Dr Angela Gallup, one of Britain's best-known forensic scientists, and Lord Stevens, the former Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. He was one of only two officers, and the only detective, to work on both the inquiry to find Peter Sutcliffe and the cold case to find Wearside Jack. Justice after nearly three decades. The Ripper investigation was was a hugely difficult investigation anyway, which was struggling at, at the best of times with the enormity of it. With the involvement of the Ripper letters and tapes, it derailed that investigation um, from almost having any chance of successfully getting to the right individual on its own merits. And three people were killed after the first letters were sent. Three women lost their lives. Could they have been saved? Nobody knows. But it certainly didn't help the investigation because until they were introduced, the case was on the tracks it should have been. It wasn't finding the person, but it was on the tracks. It came off the tracks after they were introduced. If you want to see evidence from this case, see video clips of Chris or learn more, just subscribe to the Behind the Crimes site. The link is in the show notes. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.